the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a great question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. This is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour tells uh, the improbable story of how he bounced from foster homes to orphanages in a daily struggle to survive to living the American dream as an accomplished Wall Street executive and model family man. In, uh, he tells his story in a new memoir called On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom by Ed Hajim. And uh, Ed joins me by phone. Ed, welcome to the show. Tom, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Ed, I would imagine that some of the experiences you had when you were young might be a little painful. Why share this story with people? Well, it, it was very painful. In fact, as, as I started to get into it, I had my daughter, I had to write the first uh, draft of it because I really couldn't handle it. I buried this. It's a little bit of an odyssey. It's a little bit of a long story. I buried this when I was 18. I decided I was going to go to college and, and not deal with it. As some famous person said, a little bit of denial, you know, doesn't hurt. In my case, <laughs> it was a lot of denial. <laughs> I decided to just bury it. Then I wouldn't have to deal with it. And it actually was good for me because I became a new person. And I told people my father was a merchant marine, my mother had died, and that was the story. And I didn't want to answer any more questions. And I got away with it for 55 years. And then when uh, I became the chairman of the board of trustees at the University of Rochester, uh, they said, we've got to know more about you. And then my wife and my children said, we've got, we've got to get the story down because they didn't know the whole story. My wife knew 90% of it. The kids knew 40 or 50% of it. And nobody else knew much about it at all. And uh, so I started, I had this pressure on both sides. So I 
started to get into it. And as I got into it, I started to find that I was learning things from it. And then I was just going to print it, self-publish, and give it to, you know, 100 friends and family and call it a day. When publishers and people who read the galley said, no, you can't do that. You've got to share this story because there are a lot of people who will go through similar experiences, not complete, not, not in total, but in pieces. And they will, one, say, you know, this confirms my conviction. Now I'm going in the right direction. Or one will say, I can use Ed to, to go on a new, little bit of a new path to solve this problem. Or even more importantly, some of the hardest things in my life were not in my childhood. It was later on when, you know, people do the right thing for a reasonable period of time, and it still comes out badly. And so you have to re rebound from that. And my, one of my statements in the book is that, you know, a turn in the road is not the end of the road. You'll see a couple of examples like that in, in my business career. But the childhood was very difficult. But looking back on it, again, the book helped me enormously, and I recommend people look back at their childhood. Because as I studied it, I found out some of those disadvantages that people talk about. It's horrible. He was in, you know, 15 or 20 different places before he was 18. But what did that give me? I found out it gave me a unique capability, what I call adaptability. I can almost adapt to anything, given my background. You know, going from one, anybody who's done that has changed public schools at once, you know, how you get out of the schoolyard the first day, there's a real rites of passage. Well, you have five of those, which I did, and then a couple of orphanages, which had their own rites of passage. You learn to adjust to, you know, circumstances. It's, a, it's not terribly nice to talk about. The first orphanage had 50 kids in one room, and the second orphanage only had three of us, and so that was a big uptick. So I really appreciated it, and uh, you adjust to it very easily. So, and you know, other things like resilience. You know, going through that process gave me a great deal of resilience, and perseverance. So, and then finally, most important, I think, as I get older, it gave me gratitude. I was very grateful for all the things that I have and for the American dream. You know, it's it's been a it's been a wonderful run. You know, I never never ever thought I'd be married for 55 years, have three wonderful children, and, and eight grandchildren, seven grandsons. So, you know, that's looking back at when I when I was, you know, I guess 12 or 13 years old, weighing you know 65 or 80 pounds and being four foot 11. And in an orphanage, you don't think about the fact that you can the possibility of doing all the things that I've luckily done. Or that that's a long some, answer, but or that's, that's why I decided to share it. Yeah, or that someday you might make one of the largest donations in the history of a university. No, that that was totally not in my. You know, it, it's. Let me read you this morning. One of the ladies who wrote me. She's a wonderful lady. She's a she's a dermatologist, one of the best in the business. She says, "You're so sweet." The story of a little boy still haunts me as I know it does you. Thank you for sharing it with humanity. I feel that it's an important read. It is a disadvantaged young and pre-adolescents who need the inspiration. It would be wonderful if you could find a media person who could chop this up so that people can really understand it. So I'm getting this feedback, which I got early on, just you should do it. And so far it's been very good. Uh, but the university, has to give the largest gift in the history of the university was was quite a, you know, I, I, I was going to become the chairman and the president asked me for certain amount of money, and I said, that won't do it because it's not a record. And I said, what was the record? And they told me, and I sat down with the uh, <laughs> head of development. I said, Jim, we got to do this. And he said, well, we'll figure out a way. And, uh, you know, I looked at my net worth and worked on it and then thought, well, call my kids in. And I said, this is not my money I'm giving away. It's your money. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it was nice of you to give them the heads up for sure. And they said, go for it, Dad. And my wife did too. So it, it worked out just fine. And you know something is an expression I've used for a very long time. You never give anything away. You always get back much more than you give. 
I mean, it's just it's just automatic. I mean, this gift that I gave, you know, allowed the university to start a major capital campaign, which caused really an inflection point in the university. The president did all the work. I didn't. I just gave the money, but he was fabulous. But we raised a, you know a billion three, which was more money than raised cumulatively in the previous 155 year history of the university. So it was quite a. Now, some of the money given back there in the 20s was real money, and today's money is not so real, but. But still, on a nominal basis, it was a real breakthrough, and we re-engaged our alumni. And the university was a great university anyway, but this, this gave it another step up. And it was, it was a great deal of satisfaction on my part. And, you know, it's, it's no big secret. The amount was a, it was a $30 million gift, and that puts in, in real specific relief how, how far you had come from that little boy in orphanages. Well, you know, it, 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 it is actually, it, it, I look back again, writing the book, I realized when I was 28 years old and I graduated from the Harvard Business School, I had a negative net worth. I owed the school five or $6,000, and I had to call my first employer to get me, a, me some money to get across country. <laughs> so it was, it, was a, it was a really slow start. I mean, uh, you know, you don't have anything and you're, you know, you're scratching, but I, you know, I got a good education. Uh, you know, the book is about anything is possible, and the second important thing is education is a solution to almost everything, and i got to find education. And that really set me on my way. But again, America, and I was born at the right time. As you know, you know the, the 80s, the 90s, and the last 20 years have been pretty good years in our history. If I was born like my father in 1900, you know, you don't have quite the same number of good years. You know, Ed, um, the book, your, your memoir, can serve as an inspiration to a lot of people who are going through whatever their hells are. Um, but what was your inspiration? What what convinced you, with all that was working against you, that you could take a different road? It's a very, very good question. You know, you, I could use some simple things like, uh, one of the foster homes was really, the, the first one was not so good, the second one wasn't great. But the last one was really showed me what a family could be like. So that was an example. And then, of course, something simple like the movies. You went to the movies and you saw these people, you know, John Wayne and Cary Grant always, you know, one at the end. And so you kind of could associate, oh, the Lone Ranger even. I mean, as a young child, you, you can associate with the fact that there, is, there are winners in the game. They work hard enough. They always are good guys. Uh, but the last foster home was a good one. And there was, there was a couple of other mentors along the way. The... Uh, head of the second orphanage was a very fine man. He gave us a message constantly that we could do it. And then there was my father. You know, one of my problems with some of my ghostwriters, they wanted me to hate my father. My father truly loved me, and he always passed on unconditional love, even though he was never there. He was an merchant marine, usually at sea. I saw him very little. And later on, we became estranged. But as a child, in the letters, you're the best. You can do it. You're going, to, you're going to have a great life. You know, he sent those messages. So it was a combination of things. Uh, and then, you know, something that sort of uh, I've learned, I never became a victim. You know, that's that's interesting, Ed, and, and it's not surprising that, uh, you know, publishers and editors and, and, and so on might uh, want you to paint your, your dad as uh, some kind of uh, Dickens villain. Um, but yet your story, you were kidnapped at age three and taken across country by, by your dad. 
yeah. and told that your mother was dead. Um, and, and, you know, that certainly sets the stage for a Dickens story, to be sure. But, but Ed, um, what were the circumstances that, that led to that? Well, what happened basically is mom, dad was a, see, what I've learned by writing the book again, and you probably know this, you know people that have done really well early in life and then have a, some kind of catastrophe. They don't recover. My father, you know, went from nothing to a very, very wealthy man in 1929. He, he found the, the new technology, which in those days was called radio. And he became proficient in the radio technology, went to work for RCA, you know, leveraged, leveraged money in the stock market, made a lot of money. Then lost everything between 1929 and 33. In addition to his mother, who he's very close to, also died, and, and she died supposedly because of the crash. She just had a broken heart and couldn't couldn't live with what was happening to the community. So you know, he was 33 years old, absolutely broke. He had a car and he said a box of cigars, which he didn't own, and he decided between committing suicide and driving west. And he drove west, thank God for me, because I wouldn't be here. And met my mother, who was 15 years younger, and, and two weeks married her. And went on to California, and things didn't change. So he had now, and then of course he was a very difficult character, having gone through this trauma. Once you do that, once you've been way up there and you go way down there, you have demons that just keep eating at you. So he had trouble keeping a job. Then they had me, of course, and they didn't get along. So she divorced him in 1939, which is very unusual for a 24-year-old woman to divorce a husband and, and then go home with me. And he. She took me back to St. Louis, and she wasn't really welcomed by her family. She had five siblings. It was still the Depression. You know, he didn't even know. He didn't, her father didn't even know two mouths to feed. And so when my father arrived and kidnapped me, and I really have this in the book, is that she was thinking and not feeling. And he was feeling and not thinking. He didn't realize what a responsibility would be to take me back, but he just couldn't do without me. So, And I was not well kept, according to him. He said you were, you know, you had a dirty face and you weren't well, well kept. So he just picked me up and took me and off. We went, uh, and you know, he he tried his best. That's see, I look back on this, given what happened to him, given his job, he did the best job he could. In fact, as I still am in a little bit of pain, and I want to pass this on to people, if you can do it, make up to your parents because when he died at seventy-one, suddenly we had no closure. We had peaceable coexistence. He visited us and so forth, but he rejected. Almost everything I did, he rejected. When I left the Navy, he was unhappy. When I left uh, my job at, uh, as an engineer, he was unhappy. Uh, he really kind of rejected my wife because she looked a little like my mother. <laughs> I had never seen a picture of my mother, so I didn't know what she looked like, but he did. And so it wasn't a, wasn't a terribly good relationship, but we kept a piece of book we wrote, we wrote and he visited. But when he died, he died suddenly of a heart attack. He died, he parked his car and died. 71 years old. In fact, it'll be 50 years this, this June. I'm going to go visit his grave in, in Fort Lauderdale. More about The Road Less Traveled with author Ed Hagem straight ahead. The Tom Summer Program.com From the Tom Sumner Everybody's doing 
doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county technical assistance for the tom Tom sumner radio is provided by swiftlet technology engineering and it services at swiftlet.technology Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner. More about The Road Less Traveled with author Ed Hagem straight ahead. But how did you go, Ed, from him kidnapping you and, you know, taking you cross-country, um, telling well, you... He, he how did you go from that to um, orphanages? Well, what happened basically is we, we, we spent two years together. He was at sea part of that time. I lived with a neighbor between age three and five. But at five years old, we had, of course, the famous you know, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. And he's either drafted or volunteered into become an officer in the Merchant Marines, Naval, because he had good radio skills. So he was drafted or, or volunteered. I, I, my 41-year-old single father, I don't think, gets drafted, but he might have gotten drafted. And he went to sea. And since I was born in a Catholic hospital, and the Catholic Welfare Agency was in very good shape in California, he called them told them, he told them a lie that, that my mother had died and that I was born in a Catholic hospital. Could they take me on? And they, they, they took me on into their foster care system. And the, the first foster home was, a, you know, was not terrific because I'd never met them before and so forth. And, and they were just taking me on because in those days, you could take on a foster child and they could make some money out of it. So I ended up at, at this foster home and he went to sea. And we essentially didn't see each other for four and a half years while the war was on. And I went from one foster home to the other uh, as uh, courtesy of the, of the Catholic Welfare Agency. And the last two foster homes were pretty good. In fact, the very last one was excellent. They, they treated me just like their son, who was my age. And, you know, they, they started putting me into piano lessons. And it's all in the book. And Mr. and Mrs. Rob were just delightful. And they lived in Redondo Beach. and was right across the street from the, you know, from the beach. And we used to play uh, baseball on Pacific Coast Highway. You won't believe that. <laughs> we move aside for a car. You know? Yeah, game on, game off. Yeah, um, exactly right. And that's how that's how I got into orphanages. And after the war, I mean, into foster. After the war, I came back on. He ended up on the East Coast, and again, he tried to get work for a year, and it didn't work. And I ended up in, in, in placed me in, in a Jewish orphanage. And um, did you? You never met or saw your mother again never saw a picture never saw a picture but he, he left he left a suitcase when he died in 71 he left a suitcase behind which i started to go into and it just had such bad memories and i also felt that i really made a mistake i was only 35 and i had a wife and two and a half children and i was started my own company so i had my own problems so i really didn't in the last couple of years of his life i didn't pay a lot of attention to him and i, I thought very badly about it and i started reading the he saved every letter I ever written to him 
And but I put the coupe suitcase away. And you know, 25 years later, when I was 60 years old, my wife says, cleans out the house regularly. I hope you have one of these wives. Anyway, she said, throw the suitcase away if I didn't look into it. And it turns out that it was a rainy weekend, so I started digging into it. It wasn't so good, but I found this yellow sheaf of yellow letters, and I opened it up, and sure enough, my mother hadn't died, and they had gotten divorced. The papers were in the in the envelopes. He kept those as well, thank God. And I hired a, a, a detective, an agency, and they went out to St. Louis, and they found her. And so she was 81 years old, and I wrote her a letter, which was in the book, said, Dear Mrs. Hoffman, she'd married again, and uh, I said, I think I'm your son. And uh, we, we arranged to make a phone call, and you know, we, we spent about six weeks, my wife and I, thinking whether we should add this person to our family because my father gave very such bad impression of her. Did we need someone like this in a family? You know, maybe she would reject us. You know, a whole bunch of questions like that. Sure. But we decided it was worth a shot, and we went there. She turned out to be a very nice lady. I mean, the minute I saw her, I knew she was my mother because in St. Louis, people don't talk fast like I do, and she did. <laughs> And she was kind of bent over a little bit, you know, like I'm sort of bent over, always in a ready position. And she she rhymed and she told, you know, jokes and she she was just you could tell that she was my mother. And uh, it was uh, we spent 12 years together. And the practical woman she was, you know, she was very much a practical woman. When she had to be 93, she couldn't drive anymore, and she decided just she was going to pass away, stop eating. So that flashed me back to the fact that when she said to me many times that when my father kidnapped me. She felt that he would do a better job than she would. And she'd always laugh and said, I guess he did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that she that she uh, took it that well. Well, she did. She, she, we everybody's been surprised she didn't look for me. But think of it, 1939, you come home, nobody's really kind of enthusiastic about being there. You have no money. You have nothing. You know, and, you know, what do you do? Then she, you know, 10 years later, she got married. And she had another son who was a doctor. And she, the funny part of the story was that when she found out about me, she calls him up and says, Phil, remember that brother you always wanted? <laughs> I found him for you. Oh, that's and he funny. and I have become very close friends. He's a, our families have gotten together, and my wives have talked to each other regularly and so on. So, it's, so it was all positive. And she spent 12 years with Barbara's mother, who was a little older, and Barbara's aunt was about the same age. So the three 90-year-old women had a great time together for a good period of time. So it was a... It worked out. I mean, it was it was the right time for me. I mean, I, I, I if I had, had to deal with her earlier, it might have been more difficult. When I was sixteen, really successful, kids were all gone. You know, so it was it was something I could handle as well, and she could handle. Her husband had passed away two years before, so it was kind of perfect. The good Lord has been good to me. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Timing is everything, and it was really a very pleasant period for the twelve years she stayed alive. Now you mentioned going to Harvard. Well, that's the path less, less traveled. You know, I, being an engineer, and I was doing very well at Hercules and Plastics, just like Dustin Hoffman a few years later. And uh, my father disagreed with this, but I had a buddy at, at Harvard Business School who had gone to Rochester, and he said, you've got to come up here, you've got to come up here. So I didn't think I could, first of all, get in, because my grades at college were not terrific. And uh, I didn't have the money. You know, was, Harvard was expensive. Uh, but I went up there, and I saw it, and he said, you've got to do it, and I applied. And one of my commanding officers when I was in the Navy wrote a, God, I wrote a letter that sounded like I walked on water rather than sailed on water. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I got in, I got in, and it changed my life. I mean, it was, you know, but it was, there again, the first year at the Rochester and the first three or four months at, at Harvard, really shockers. And these are the kind of things I want to get across to 
first-gen kids that, you know, it's tough, but you'll make it. Don't worry about it. I mean, my first year at Rochester, you know, everything went wrong. I had the wrong clothes, I had the wrong roommate. I got rejected by a fraternity house. Uh, you know, I, our football team lost almost every one of its games. I, I made the freshman basketball team, but I sat on the bench. And I spent the Christmas on a train to my father, you know, three, three days back from Rochester to San Francisco and three days back again and, you know, ended up waiting on tables at, you know, at New Year's Eve. So it was three ugly four or five months, but, you know, then I made it after that. Harvard, the same way. You walked in and one of my roommates went over to the, went over to the uh, admissions office and said, you know, I made it very clear that I didn't want to live with a foreign student. And, by the way, he said, Ed Hajim, not Hajim. <laughs> He's not a foreign student. He's a naval officer from California. So, you know, I've suffered from the hajim for a long time because everybody pronounces it incorrectly. And, in fact, in my, my, I give a, a, a commencement address every year, and I tell the kids up at Rochester, the reason I named the school after me is because 400 kids a year are going to have to suffer with the pronunciation of my name like I have <laughs> my entire life. <laughs> Hajim's better, but it sounds much better, I'll tell you, but it's not, unfortunately. But he, he complained about living with a foreign student. So, and everybody seemed like they were either Princeton, Harvard, or Yale up at, up at Harvard. So it was really intimidating. But after well, a while, you find out, you, you fit in, you do your job. And, and then I, did, I, did, I, did, I flourished. It was a wonderful educational experience. And, and I did well and, and you know, sort of satisfied myself that I was academically qualified to go on. Well, you know, if you compete with a, you know, everybody's from Princeton, it's, it, it really is a, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, I was... They never even mentioned Rochester. They say, this is my friend Ed. He's from a small school in upstate, upstate New York. And Rochester <laughs> is not a small school. It's got 30,000 employees, and it's a $4 billion enterprise. But you know, as far as they were concerned, it was a small school. <laughs> well, Ed, your dad was uh, a, an immigrant from Syria. Would, right. you, would your name have been pronounced oh, Hajim? Well, they, they, they came over the name as Ajami, A-D-J-M-E. They didn't speak any English. And the customs were sitting there, you know, the guy made it up, you know, he made it up. <laughs> and those five letters, by the way, you will not find, my, my daughter does a research job almost every year. She, she thinks she's found somebody in a prison in Morocco with the same five letters, but she hasn't been able to find anybody else. We thought there was a woman in Thailand for a while uh, with those five letters, but there's a, a first name in Japan, Hajime, H-A-J-I-M-E, that's a first name. But the word, hey, the five letters of Hajime are pretty much the only Hajims in the world. So now I have five, seven grandsons, so there's a few more Hajims, but not many more. And what made you think, after having, uh, uh, to say the least, uh, a rough upbringing, that college was an option for you, let alone again, eventually Again, the road, the road less traveled. And in high school, you know, I, I luckily, the, the orphanage was in Yonkers, New York. It was four blocks from Roosevelt High School, in which about 80% of the kids went to college and private colleges. Most of the kids at the home, half of them didn't go to college, and half of them usually went to, you know, local public schools because they were free, what, Brooklyn College, or, or they waited the Community year, colleges. Yeah, you know, community colleges. But I, but I wanted to go to a private college like the rest of the kids, and, and I was going to take every scholarship and I'd get my hands on. Those days, there weren't many. And, and that really was, a, it was an epiphany. I said, there's another road. I said, most people don't do this. I'm going to, try, I'm going to go to a private college, and I really wanted to go to Cornell desperately. Uh, I was accepted at Cornell and Rensselaer and Rochester. Rochester was an afterthought. Was the principal of the high school said, you've got to have three schools. I said, I want to go to Cornell. But then when I got an NRTC scholarship, I didn't get the New York State scholarship, which I was sure I was going to get because that paid full tuition. Uh, and I got the NRTC scholarship, 
uh, Cornell said that's great, but it's probably going to take you five years because you, you have certain required NRMTC courses, which will push out your engineering courses. And I didn't have any money for the fifth year, and Rochester said, we'll get you two and four. And by the way, you don't have to take German, which you had to take in Cornell when I was a chemical <laughs> engineer. I figured that was, that was something I, I can pass. But I didn't realize what Rochester had done. I was in class six, six eight o'clock a week. Now, on Saturday morning, too, and I was in a laboratory every afternoon for four years. And then I took a summer course to get through in four years. So it, it was a real, I mean, I didn't get educated. I, I took one year of English and a half year of economics, and the rest was science and engineering. I spent three years in the Navy reading books, you know, great books like uh, Iliad and, and the Odyssey and uh, Beowulf and, uh, you know, all of the, 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 the thing, the Bible. I mean, the classics. I, I read books. I, I had to because I, I was really, I was an engineer. And by the way, we only graduated about 10 or 15% of the class from the start. So it was, a, it was one of these look to the left, look to the right, both of them will be gone. <laughs> well, you picked a great title on The Road Less Traveled. I, the Road Less Traveled, I've always been fascinated by that that concept. What What if I had made a different decision? What if I had made different choices? And um, how did you zero in on that? that phrase for the title well, well first of all you know, Robert Frost uh, wrote, of course wrote the virgin in it, it's, it's a, it, virgin the yellow wood which you know, like the one less traveled and then of course one of my favorite writers is Scott Peck and I believe in, he did four he set up four or five things to follow that I really believe I keep reading his rereading his book called the road less traveled it didn't hurt that he sold 20 million copies of that either <laughs> so I think I was, but he, 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 he laid out you know, things like uh, delayed gratification was very important, and that was important in my life. That was one of his principles. Uh, with taking responsibility, another one of his principles. Uh, basically, you know, love is giving to others, another one of his principles. These things, you know, fit very well. It's, it's, he'd written this, and I felt that I did take, you know, think about it. Leaving in the Navy, when I was really in good shape in the Navy, as a naval officer, I was going on really well, good reports. To leave the Navy and go into engineering, you know, and then do well in engineering, and then think, you know, take all the money I had in the world, which was five thousand dollars, and go to Harvard Business School. I arrived there and I said to them, guys, I can't make it. I mean, I can't make it through the first year. And they said, okay, we'll lend you the money. Then you couldn't get a scholarship in those days. But that was a load rest travel too. And then when I should have gone to Wall Street, you know, I ended up going to a mutual fund, which was a real godsend after I graduated from Harvard Business School. And that happened just by chance. I happened to interview them because I needed a ticket to California, and they were. Capital Research in Los Angeles was a fabulous you know, place to start. It gave me my postdoc in investing. It, it let me exercise my passion, which I still have. I have two passions. One is the stock market. More important passion is management. I, I love being involved in managing people. And, and, and you know, I found out something in college that I really get a kick out of, helping people do better than they think they can. And if you do that, you find out that you do better than you, even you think you can. And that's been my... You know, that's, you say, how did I do this? How did I do that? I, I really spend time trying to get people to do better than they can, to exceed their own expectations. And then, I must say, I didn't realize it, but it helps me exceed my own expectations. And that's another, another thing I want to pass on to people. I want to, those are two things I want to pass on. Plus, I really feel as you get farther in life is to make sure that you realize that you can accomplish almost every, anything. Ronald Reagan said this, if you don't worry, who gets the credit? 
And those are the kind of things you put together in a, in a management scheme which allows you to operate every day in this not-so-simple world. But one of the things that comes out in your book, Ed, is your ability to look back at hardships, not in, in that, that way that, you know, why is my life so much tougher than everybody else's, but as exercises that, yeah, Tom, that improved you, got... you over time. Tom, you're absolutely right. That's a great insight. Great. This is why I'm, I'm glad I wrote the book. It's a Comments like you just made tell me that people can see a difference. You know, I decided I was not going to be a victim. No matter what happened to me, I would look forward. And, you know, the more that more I did it, the more it worked, the more it reinforced that concept. So if you become a victim, you can use energy becoming a victim. Instead, use that energy to think about what to do next. You get rejected by the local golf club, you build your own. <laughs> if they kick out of Lehman Brothers, you find your dream job. You know, you know, it's it's it really is that kind of it's 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 a, almost a mantra. You look back at things and say, yeah, you know, maybe. And, and I don't want to be simplistic. Things happen for the best in the best of all possible worlds. I'm not going to say that, but you know, in some respects, it really works if you just go on. You know, don't don't try to suffer with what's what's happening, and don't and don't hate people. You know, for what they do. There are a lot there are a lot of bad people in the world. But all you do is you reject him and go on. And, you know, my boss at Lehman Brothers was awful. I mean, he was terrible. But, you know, I tried to... How'd that him. work out for him? <laughs> he, he, he actually blew... And I left the company in 83, and seven months later, he blew the company up. And he sold it to Shearson for nothing. I mean, you know, so... It, it, I mean, I, I, mean I, didn't, I didn't gloat on that either, because I, I had a lot of friends there. I didn't, didn't go down. They would go down so quickly. But, you know, I traded that in for... a for a job, I mean, I went from fancy dining rooms and fancy office space to my office at Furman Cells, looked over into, into, into a, a brick wall, the one at Lehman Brothers, looked out over the whole harbor. The dining room was a classic dining room at Lehman Brothers, one of the best on Wall Street. And when I went to Furman Cells, we had a, two hot plates in a conference room, you know. <laughs> but, you know, but it was, it was, that was my job. I loved it. And it, it worked out really well for me. I spent 20 years running my own company, which I had a ball with. And I able to put in some of those principles into practice. I, I always I compliment myself on one really big thing that I did in being the CEO and chairman of a company. I paid myself most money once in twenty years. And I think that's you know, that just showed everybody that I walked the walk. And you know, that, that those are the kinds of things I'm hoping to pass on to people that, you know, that they can basically, you know, you can do almost anything if you really treat your your comp you know and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm selfish in the fact that I found out early on I was only as good as the people I surrounded myself with because I, I failed when I was 33, 34 in a company, and it was recently because I tried to do everything myself. So you surround yourself with partners who can do things that you can't do. You surround yourself with partners who can do things you can do but you don't want to do. And so what you end up with is do, doing things basically that you want to do that you do pretty well. <laughs> Well, Ed, this is a, a fascinating book and a fascinating story, and kudos to you for, for sharing uh, your journey with uh, in the book and with our listeners this morning. Um, but, Ed, I, uh, I have to ask, is this book a one-off, or do you now have a writing bug? I, I, I have it. I actually, it took me seven years to do this, and I have three manuscripts. Second manuscript, you're not allowed to ask this, but... Uh, now, by the way, this book is audible as well. If you're not, a, if you're a slow reader like me, you can listen to it. And the guy who read it 
Bob Shapiro is fabulous. So it really is a good job. I read the preface, but I, <laughs> it took me two hours to get eight minutes done. I figured I wouldn't do the seven-hour book. But no, I have a book. The last, the, the epilogue is called The Four Ps. Uh, I'm gonna, I've written a book on the four Ps themselves because I really believe that one of the ways to get through life is to have a conversation with your inner voice, which is your only constant, and have it in certain pockets or certain buckets. You know, These are four Ps. You'll read them in the back. Passions, principles, partners, and plans. And those four buckets, those four pictures, have to be poured into the buckets of life, which is work, family, uh, self-work, family, and community, which is giving back. And it's a juggling act. And that my, my second book is on the juggling act. It's an allegory, which I wrote you know, almost seven years ago. And then the last book is I'm going to take the first book and really extract the lessons and zero in on them, make them TED Talks. Where each lesson is maybe five or six pages and really zeroes in on mistakes made, you know, past taken, so forth. I have that. That is that was three quarters written. So I hope to have a, I hope to have a trilogy if if if, if it works out. If I live long enough. <laughs> well, Ed, I I wish you a long life and and the opportunity to tell more stories because this one is certainly. Uh, phenomenal ed i always give uh, we're just about out of time but i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past present and future obviously the book is uh, is a great first step on the road less traveled an unlikely journey from the orphanage to the boardroom by ed hadjim and um Tom, thank you so much. Thank you so much for reading the book. Thank you for having me. You know, I really appreciate it. This is a whole new experience for me because my life, I live under the mantra to live happy as live hidden. And going out into the public is a little bit scary, and people like you have made it easier. You can uh, buy the book on Amazon, on Simon, Simon and Schuster, and there are four, of other, four or five other things. Just go to Amazon, and they list all the people, all the places. They also, all my reviews are there. And they do a pretty good synopsis of it. If you're not sure you want to read it, the synopsis either will convince you to read it or not read it. Also, my publicist, God bless her, she's, she's, the, the website is very, very robust now. It's www.edhagim.com. And it's very robust there. And I, I, I uh, help you focus on one of the lines in it. In it I give... Oh, I know, eight or nine reasons for being grateful. It was a line for gratitude. They've also, they lay out all my media, uh, my, my background and everything else. Everything's there. Scaring me to death, you know. Uh, I, hope that there are no, I hope there are no skeletons in my closet, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you would overcome it. Ed, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. I no, no, thank it. you, Tom. Thank you for spending the time. And good luck. You too. And they as they say, may the force be with you. All right? <laughs> okay, take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Have a great day. Take care. Again, the name of the book is On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom by Ed Hagem. And we have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio For a new Generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner 
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hello there, citizen. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, 
Where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee, he picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel and said, "Goo goo 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 That's not the, that's not the right verse. He was only six months years old. Wait, six, Tommy. The real, the ethnic. You know the real version of John. When John Henry was a little baby, sitting on his daddy's knee. Daddy picked him up, threw him on the floor, said, this baby's done wet on me. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. Oh, I one more chance. One more chance is all you get. See this pin? It says, think ethnic. You gotta think ethnic and sing ethnic to ever earn this pin. When John Henry was a little baby Sitting on his daddy's knee He picked up a hammer and a little piece of steel And said this hammer be the death of me, Lord, Lord Hammer be the death of me Yeah, when John Henry was just a little tyke He picked up a piece of steel and a hammer it seemed like he knew all the time, down deep inside, that he was going to work on the railroads. And there was a big story waiting for him to arrive on. Why was a little boy used to go around hammering on things? His daddy bought him a little hammer. Let's go around hammering the tables and hammering the fixtures. We <laughs> used to get a licking all the time to go up and hammer on the front door. Hammer on the chairs. Yet as John Henry grew, he grew in size, and he grew in stature, and he grew in his mind, his horizons grew. He started going out and got a bigger hammer. Started walking around town hammering things. Hammering trees, people's fences, fire hydrants. While John Henry could just go around hitting one fire hydrant with one whop, whop. Yeah. All dogs in town hated John Henry. <laughs> well, the whole story goes is that when he grew to full size, he could drive steel on the railroad, drive those spikes in the ground faster than any ten men. People started talking about John Henry. Why, he's the fastest man that ever drove steel on the railroad. 
And the whole story of John Henry really starts the day the captain told John Henry something. John Henry said, tell me something, captain. <laughs> then the captain said, John Henry, I'm gonna bring me a steam drill round. I'm gonna bring me a steam drill out on the job. I'm gonna pop that steel on down, Lord, Lord, pop that steel on down. Sure enough, next day they had a steam drill out on the job. Big red steam drill, shiny smokestack sticking up in the air. Well, they had old John Henry over there, muscles rippling in the sun, sweat running off in gimlets. Ringlets. Well, the captain head of all the railroad workers, looked over at that steam drill and smiled. Then he turned over and he looked over at John Henry, with his beady little eyes. And he snarled over at John Henry. Hi there, John. <laughs> well, John Henry didn't say nothing. Just spit on his hands, picked up those two nine-pound hammers, walked slowly over towards that steam drill, spit on the steam drill. <laughs> then went over and spit on the captain. <laughs> so it got to be about 12 o'clock starting time for the race. Every railroad man in the county was out there that day because they knew if John Henry lost that race, they were all out of a job. Well, it got to be starting time for the race. John Henry is up there at that starting line. And Steam Drill was up there at that starting line. Big smokestack sticking right up in the air. A little bit of spit on it. <laughs> well, the captain walked up to the starting line. I swear you could hear a pin drop that day. Took out his pistol and pointed it up in the air. John Henry spit on it. <laughs> Actually, this was about the greatest race in the history of man. The race between a man and a machine. He pointed that pistol up in the air and shot it off. Bang! <laughs> that started that race.
when the steam drill was going on the left side and John Henry hammered on the right. The steam drill made ten feet, John Henry only three, then it hammered John Henry out of sight, Lord, Lord. Hammered John Henry out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> hammered John Henry out of sight. Oh, Lordy. Yeah, that's right. John Henry lost that race. Dumb smart I thought he could be a steam drill. <laughs> what a thing for crying out loud. John Henry said to the captain, to the captain, by God I ain't no fool. Before I'll die with a hammer in my hand, I'm gonna get me a steam drill too, Lord Lord. Get me a steam drill too. Get me a steam drill too, Lord Lord. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
I'm Alexander Zajic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 